0: today a very different kind of conversation on the recommended dose. Much more about the art of medicine, not the science. Hello, I'm Ray Moynihan and welcome to the podcast promoting a more questioning approach to healthcare. Produced by Cochrane Australia and co-published with the BMJ. My friend and colleague, Iona Heath, is a long-time family doctor. She's worked for decades as a GP in a practice in London, and she's gained an international profile, in part through her much-loved writing in the BMJ. Unlike many guests, Iona Heath loves words more than numbers and literature more than clinical guidelines. We caught up during a recent conference in Helsinki, where her presentation had very little data, but was very rich with quotes from the likes of novelists, including E.M. Forster and James Baldwin. In a profile in the BMJ, I think you summarised your personality in three words. You said, lucky three times. (laughs) I did. Why did you say that?
1: Because I feel that I've been immensely fortunate in my life, particularly when I think about the previous generation's lives in the blighted by the war I've been incredibly fortunate classic baby boomer but very lucky in my relationship my children and then my career and the fact that I worked for 35 years in such an interesting practice with such wonderfully supportive colleagues with absolutely fascinating patients
0: I think you were asked if you 'd like to thank who would you like to thank most for for what 's happened in your life, and I think you said you wanted to thank your patients yeah. oh, they, taught you me say more. That?
1: they taught me more than more than anything so the, so the, for example, the patient who taught me that you have to just sit and listen was this wonderful, um, very deprived, very damaged uh, woman from Ireland who had an alcohol problem and a handicapped child and Multiple suicide attempts, and she taught me that I'm going to come here and, I'm, and she would tell me what was happening. And if I interrupted her, she would just, she wouldn't comment, she would just go back to the beginning of the story and start again. So I very quickly learnt do not interrupt this woman because otherwise you're going to be here all day. You just went back to the beginning and she just started again because she had it in her mind, the story she was going to tell, and she just lost her flow if I interrupted.
0: And and why is it important for clinicians to listen better, more?
1: Because all the clues are there. All the clues are there about about the way somebody tells their story. When I was um, uh, first working in hospital, I only did one year in hospital, but I I was uh, clerking a man who'd had a heart attack that morning. And he was telling me this story and he was telling me what time he'd got up, every single thing he'd had for breakfast, what the weather was like. And, you know, in my arrogant youth, I was incredibly irritated by this and wanted him to get to the point. And, of course, he was trying to point a clue to me about why this had happened now. He knew that somewhere in his story was the critical event that had made it happen then. I mean, we neither of us knew what the answer was, but he thought that I might have a chance of knowing what it was if he told me every detail, which is perfectly fair enough. So we, we don't listen nearly enough because all new knowledge is in the patient experience. And if we don't listen to it on the basis of the knowledge we already have, we're going to miss all the knowledge we might get.
0: Do you think people came to you, enjoyed seeing you as a GP, as a family physician because you you knew how to listen?
1: Uh, I'm sure that's part of it, and I'm sure there are patients who have said, oh, she never listened at all, um, if you see what I mean. Um, but I did try to listen and try not to interrupt.
0: What else was different about the way you practice? I'm, I have to confess that I often think if I was living in London and you were available as a GP, I would have wanted to go and see you as my family physician. And that's very kind. I, I imagine you would have been fantastic. But what was it? What was different about the way... Iona Heath practice as a, as a GP?
1: I don't think there was that much different. I think there are a lot of brilliant GPs across the world, and, and, and perhaps particularly in the UK because we've got such a long, long tradition. So I learned a lot from my colleagues as well, and, and, and the colleagues I practice with all those years. Again, wonderful models of, of how to look after people and how to. It's, it, it is a completely fascinating thing when you're providing long term care. When someone goes away on holiday, you have to look after their patients. And when they come back from their holiday, you say, my goodness, how do you cope with that one? That person's a nightmare. How do you manage? But you don't have any patients like that. We all said it to each other, but we none of that felt that about our own difficult patients because we'd worked out a way of, of forging a relationship. and
0: There was a connection.
1: Yeah, there was a connection and you could keep it going and it wasn't such a burden but looking after difficult patients of other people.
0: I guess I'm thinking, though, you have this huge profile as someone who has spoken up about the dangers of medicalisation for decades. Now, that must have affected the way you practised on a, on a day-to-day basis with your, your, your patients, your, your, the people that saw you.
1: Yes, and I think you have to be very, uh, very, very careful to guard against nihilism. I'm, I'm, what
0: do you mean by nihilism?
1: A therapeutic nihilist, nothing works, why bother, you know, life is short and brutish and we're all going to end in the grave. You know, I mean, you have to be very careful that you make the best of modern medicine available to people with all the caveats. Um,
0: and while you're aware of, very aware of the limits of medicine, you're also aware of the benefits, aren't you?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I've been seriously ill myself uh, several times and I, w- uh, and I would be dead several times over if it wasn't for the National Health Service and its care and all that. So, you know, I know about the power of modern medicine. But I also used to say to my patients who would bring in little bits of paper from the, from the red-top newspapers.
0: You mean from the popular newspapers? The
1: popular newspapers. I, you know, really, don't ask me to give you anything new. You know, just wait two or three years because we never know. And new medications can be dangerous, so I tried to introduce a, that bit of caution.
0: Did you see a change in the in the in the decades that you were practicing, people consulting the internet more, getting more informed, bringing that information into the to the yeah. interaction with you? Yeah. Did you think that was a good thing? Was it
1: a bad I, I, I thought that was a good thing. I mean, when you're confronted with fifty pages, that's a little disempowering, but I thought by and large that's a good thing, and I like people with lists. I love lists. People complain about lists when people bring in a list. I love the ones that have carrot, potatoes and onions down the side where they've written their shopping list and their doctor list on the on the same thing. I I I I really I really like that.
0: And another thing that that I've found when myself or a loved one is in need of care is this idea of going to the doctor as a group. So not just coming as an individual patient, but coming with your sister or your yeah, mom yeah, or yeah. your best friend or two friends, particularly if it's a serious issue. Yeah, yeah, I mean, did you have that? That's
1: great. That's really great. And particularly, you know, because I'm working with a multi-language, multi-ethnic group. So Often you needed that to, to to have any degree of comprehension about what was going on.
0: Apart from being a GP, you also developed a bit of a career as a, as a doctor politician. I mean, you rose to the height of the president of the Royal College of General Practitioners.
1: Well, that process started entirely by accident. In 1989, they threatened to suspend all training in my region of the country because the powers that be disapproved of the guy who was running the training. Quite rightly, they disapproved, but they were going to just punish all the trainees by rendering their training invalid. So we were all furious, and I went to a meeting, drove out to East London somewhere, and went to a meeting and listened to all these platitudes about a standard is a standard is a standard. And I came back and I was more angry than when I went to the meeting and I read in the college journal that if you stood in the national ballot to be on the council of the Royal College, you could make a 50-word statement that would be delivered to all the membership. So I wrote this rant. 50 You can't rant very much in 50 words, but I ranted about how out of touch they were with the real world. I had no idea it was so easy to get elected. I topped the ballot by a substantial (laughs) and never looked back really because you yeah, I never realised that you could get involved quite so easily.
0: Let's talk a bit about, about evidence and, and the way into talking about that. Let's talk about shared decision-making, this, this new wave that's coming through medicine now. Would you say that you practised shared decision-making? How, what, what do you think about this idea of shared decision-making?
1: I honestly, if I'm really honest, I'm not quite sure I really understand what it is. I've been very impressed by Anne-Marie Moll's book on the logic of care. And she contrasts it with the logic of choice. And she says that the capitalist model is a series of nodules where you make a choice, a binary choice. And that's how capitalism works and sells you things. But actually in the logic of care, the caring dyad are experiencing things together and choice emerges. It isn't a, a, a nodular thing choice emerges. She, she's this Dutch philosopher who observed diabetic clinics in Holland. And that's my experience, is that choice emerges, that the, the decisions emerge within a continuing care-therapeutic relationship. But obviously, you have to allow them to emerge. They're not, they're not going to emerge if you close off some options before the patient has even had a chance to notice that there was an option. So I think it has to be a sort of broad, broad approach to what choices there might be. One uh, of my Norwegian friends says that you, you must always answer the question, what would you do, doctor? You have to caveat it by saying, you know, my life is different, your decision might well be very different from mine, but I would do this, because that then delineates a, a decision space. And the other thing about shared decision-making that I think is a danger is the offloading of guilt when things go wrong and that one of the moral responsibilities of doctors is actually to share that guilt. If somebody is facing a really difficult decision, if you say, if you offer them, if I were you, I'd do this, when they're desperate for some sort of help, then if it goes wrong, then they can say it's the doctor's fault and it's not my fault, and they don't have to live with that forever. The illustration, again, was told to me by a Norwegian friend who was rung, remote Western Norway, rung from the main hospital in Oslo by young parents who just had a baby with a serious heart condition. Norway's a rich country. The child was going to die unless it had major cardiac surgery of a type that wasn't done in Norway then, and they, were off- they said, you must decide this child is going to die, the child may die anyway, but if you want the operation, we have the funds to fly you to America, but you have to decide And so they phoned their GP in the deep west of Norway and he listened to all this and he said, I think you should bring the baby home. And then he's taken that guilt, uh, the weight of that decision away from them. And I think we underestimate the importance of sharing the bad decisions as well as the good decisions. Sharing, shared decision-making makes it sound so, uh, makes such a complicated area sound so simple. And in the really important cases, it's not simple.
0: Again, you're really trying to bring the relationship, the human relationship between the doctor and and the patient or the person. You're putting that front and centre, aren't you? Yeah. Let's talk about evidence. Um, This program talks a lot about evidence, trying to create a more questioning approach to healthcare and using evidence to do that. I think you have a bit of a different view about evidence than a lot of the people we've spoken to. When you hear the term evidence-based medicine, what do you think?
1: I think it's a noble aspiration and I think that we need to keep pursuing it. But I think that, we, that, that we've got a real problem with the corruption of the evidence because if you, if you lose the trust of a, of a generation of clinicians, frontline clinicians, by corrupting the evidence so that they do things that they perceive as harm their patients, then you're in real problem with the science, corrupted science. How do you regain that trust? How do you distinguish bad evidence from good evidence? Who can you trust?
0: But I don't think you just think that the, the problem with evidence is because of the corruption of evidence. I think it's deeper than that, is it not? I mean, you've written um, that, that evidence-based medicine tempts us to describe people in terms of data, uh, data, uh, yes. numbers from yes. Biominate, and, and that will never be enough.
1: That's true. That's true. And I do have a real argument with numbers versus words because because the old case descriptions of patients, beautifully written, nuanced, subtle descriptions of people and their conditions, what have we lost when we reduce that to a number? I think the worst thing that's happened in the course of my career is the separation of diagnosis from symptoms. So where I was always taught that there's lots of illness without disease, but there's almost no disease without illness. We've completely flipped that round. Now there is an epidemic of disease without illness where people are, are just told that their numbers are wrong and therefore they're ill. I mean, that didn't exist in the early 1970s and it's just taken off. What have we done? What, what good does that do the world?
0: In other words, when you started, you were much more focused on helping sick people. Yes. And, and now, as, as a GP...
1: You're, you're overwhelmed f- with the sick people can't get in the door because the, the well are in there getting this, that and the other checked all the time.
0: And that's why you have this concern about, about preventive medicine, is it?
1: Yes, because I think that the great moments of public health, the great progressive moments... Are at a distance from the patient. They're health protection. They're stopping smoking in public spaces. They're not nagging individual smokers every hour of every day. They're stopping smoking in public spaces. They're introducing seat belts and speed limits and stopping people smashing themselves up on on our roads. In Scandinavia, they're having a decent social equity policy so that there's a proper safety net and people are not living deprived and undignified lives while watching the others water skiing or whatever.
0: So they're the, they're the preventive, they're the public health measures that you
1: like. Yes, and they've, and, they, and they've been completely sidelined by this whole thing about lifestyle disease and doing all the prevention at the level of the individual, which, which turns into a simple exercise in victim blaming, as far as I'm concerned. You know, people, there's nobody nowadays that doesn't know that it's dangerous to smoke. Nobody they smoke because they can't get through the day without it people don't don't do these things just just because they're feckless and stupid but you'd think from a lot of the lifestyle rhetoric that that's how it was and social justice is the biggest promoter of good health in a population than any drug
0: this is Related, I think, to your concern about guidelines. I mean, a lot of the the people that we talk to on this program um, are promoting the idea of evidence based guidelines that will influence uh, medical practice, that will guide doctors in the decisions they make, that can inform people about the risks and benefits of treatments. But you have a different view about guidelines, don't you?
1: Well, speaking as somebody you know who's trying to see a different patient every ten minutes and maybe seeing forty in a day, and one of the trouble with guidelines is they start with diagnosis. OK, so that, 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 that's well down the process, particularly in primary care. And, and you want to watch, actually keep people away from diagnoses as long as you can, because that improves your chances of getting the diagnosis right in the end. If you make a diagnosis within two minutes, unless it's something barn door, you're probably going to get it wrong. So you need to take your time and just... Um, Yeah, just slow, slow medicine. Slow medicine is is good. So that's one of the problems. with, and, And the other is just the sheer volume of guidelines. I mean, it's ludicrous. Nobody could read them all. Not even the biggest guideline enthusiast could read all the guidelines available. I mean, life is too short.
0: If you're, I mean, I think what you're saying will be seen as very Luddite. very well i'm not sure how it will be seen, but what do you put in its place then if you, if you're not using the guidelines, I think I heard you say today at a presentation that in, in all your years of practicing you didn't really refer I used to one
1: guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> No, I did use one regularly, but I did try to uh, I have always tried to keep up with the literature and one of my one of my worries about systematic reviews and this is very un cochrane because an individual paper I know how to critique now I know what to look for I know what the um you know the patient group is I know who's been excluded roughly I can look at that single paper and I can decide whether this is relevant to this particular patient or not systematic review you have to trust the systematic reviewers there's no way that you can make a professional judgment about the relevance of this piece of information to my patient.
0: I mean, there are ways of critiquing the reliability of a systematic review, but you're saying that the average GP might not have time for that. He
1: might not have time for that. And the particular challenge for the, for the GP is not the robustness of the evidence. It's, there was a recent brilliant Trish Greenhouse paper. It's deciding whether the evidence has something to offer to this particular patient. So there's the issue about the evidence missing the mark, there's the issue about um, how much we can trust the evidence, and then there's the sheer volume of the evidence. Um, I think it's absolutely important that you know the evidence around the common things that we see and that you know the evidence about the dangerous things that that are likely to turn up in primary care.
0: Am I right in saying that instead of of championing numbers and evidence, you would champion words and literature? (laughs)
1: I would. I mean, obviously, there's a place for numbers. But if I think about probably what was the most, one of the most sensational shifts of evidence, of so-called evidence in my um, career was, that was the cot death thing. You know, we were, we, when I started, we were telling everybody to put their children on their tummies. And I did that with both my kids. Thank God they survived. Um, and now we know that that's associated with a higher rate of cot death. And we had three cot deaths in a week in my practice. It was really traumatic. Um so and that that was a you know, that was a really good piece of research that saved, saved practice saved changed practice and saved lives. And I don't think um there's not that many papers that you can say that about.
0: But but you do you do value words and you do value literature I a lot, do don't work, you? And, and value and, words and, and, and literature, uh, yes. And, and so when I when I when you present around the world at scientific conferences, everyone else is putting up graphs and numbers and systematic reviews <laughs> and, and you're quoting John Locke or, <laughs> yeah. or, or or the great you know, some some, some novelist Baldwin. or James Baldwin. And it's very powerful and very affecting. How do you see literature <laughs> informing the practice of medicine?
1: Because the whole of life is about words, we learn how to be ill. We learn how to relate to the world with words, not with numbers. We relate to the world with words. And we, and we learn about words in relationship with each other. And we learn about what it is to be ill through words. And we learn what it is to feel well with words. And we need words. The, the listening to the words of the patient at the beginning of an illness episode is absolutely crucial. So, so why don't we pay more attention to those whose genius is the use of words—novelists, poets, etc.?
0: Historians, philosophers, exactly,
1: sociologists, people who—who, who, as Seamus Heaney writes it, the he puts it, the world is different after it has been described by a Shakespeare and Emily Dickinson. Under it's not quite the right quote, but. The world is changed. You do see the world differently once you've read certain authors. So to take an Australian. I'll never forget reading Cloud Street, Tim Winton's Cloud Street, when I was fairly early on in practice. And, you know, suddenly they all my patients were quite as crazy as the population of Cloud Street. But it made you see them as such endearing characters. And so, you know, it's just a... It's definitely helped me survive. To see parallels between what I read... Apparently for recreation, I see parallels with my work and I found that incredibly enriching and informative and, and I've learnt a lot from those sorts of insights. From
0: and, and you think it benefited your patients?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, I think so.
0: You've also benefited us because you suggested... Uh Uh, that I read a book by Sarah Moss, the great British novelist, living British novelist, (laughs) young British novelist, and we ultimately interviewed her on this podcast and uh, that was an extraordinary conversation. She, of course, writes about medical matters, often historical, Um, so thank you very much for that.
1: (laughs) Well, I was amazed by her, yes. I heard her speaking at a literary event. That's another person you should interview. You should interview Sam Guglani, who runs Medicine Unboxed.
0: All right, we'll take that one on board. <laughs> Before we wind up, just a little bit about you and your family. I think you're there's three generations in your family now. You're you're yeah. enjoying not just being a parent, but also being a grandparent, is exactly. that right? Exactly.
1: Yeah. 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 We have yes it's re- very remarkable for my husband, who's the only child of two only children um so hes suddenly got this family, which he finds a little surprising um but
0: we oh, have... I bet he's a great grandfather he as well. is a great
1: grandfather so we got a a son and a daughter, and each of them have two daughters. And so we have four granddaughters. We have a monstrous regiment of women in and, the development stage.
0: And do you have your regular day with them or, or, uh, you, or with it's the two, not that organised?
1: Our son's moved away to Bristol, so we see them more intensely at bigger intervals and then we see the other two once a week. Yeah.
0: And, uh, and I know that you travel a lot these days since you've uh, kind of semi-retired. You always seem to be jetting around somewhere.
1: <laughs> well, it's... It's quite wonderful to have been involved in international general practice. And it is also quite wonderful how you can talk to general practitioners around the world and we have so much shared common experience at, at the front line of generalist practice that you can you can be on the same wavelength people very so I have GP friends, family medicine friends all over the world and it's such a delight. What a privilege. It's a joy. It's a great joy. Love and wonder. James Baldwin.
0: <laughs> Pleasure to talk to you, Iana.
1: Pleasure to be here, right? That
0: was a conversation with Dr. Iona Heath, recorded at the Too Much Medicine meeting in Helsinki. Thanks to Shauna Hurley and Cochrane Australia for production, BMJ for co-publishing and Jan Mutz for editing. If you enjoy The Dose, and thanks to all of you who've told us you do, please rate us or recommend us, or not. And coming soon, a Grand Prix-loving, music festival-going, evidence-informed guru, with some sublime music from Scotland thrown in.